the book of Acts, uh, chapter 6, we're going to be. Good to see you, Titus and Caleb, pieces of human. Savannah, good to see you too. Little female there at the back. And we've got Isaiah. Did you guys see Isaiah yet? It's good to see you, bud. We've been missing your face. You always welcome you. Your friends, sorry, I didn't get your name, but you're welcome. Wes, fantastic to have you, man. God bless you. And Darren, good to see you, man. All right. So the, we, we're going to spend some time in verses 8 to 15. If you do have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there, or you can just look on the screen. I've got it here for you. Um, and the title for tonight is When Zeal Clashes with Truth. When you're so zealous over something and you believe so deeply in something that even if you present it with a truth that contradicts your zeal, you, um, you cannot accept the truth. You would rather go with your passion than you would go with the actual truth. That's what I think we're going to see uh, tonight in this lesson. So for those of you who haven't been here, we are, we are traveling with the story of Luke as he is he's painting the picture for us as to how this first century church um, was birthed. But it's not just about the church. The church is a result of what the, the, the apostles did. What did the apostles do? They brought about a message that changed the world, a message that Jesus Christ saved the sins of human beings, that we can be forever with God. And this message permeated the world, the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross, that He died, that He was buried, raised to life, and those who believe in that submit to their lives to this gospel, that they would receive eternal life. This message was sent, and, and, and the book of Acts shows us how this message is being persecuted. The people who preach this, they are being persecuted. But however, despite the persecution, the hearts of people are changing. The church is established. The kingdom of God moves throughout the world. It's an incredible, incredible, incredible story. And we see how Satan is involved in this story and how he tries to block it and how he tries to divert it. And he just doesn't want the message to go out. So well done for being here tonight. I think there's lots of people in this community that um, are doing nothing right now. And they've got no regard for God's word. But you are here. And, and the same message that acts permeates um, will be proclaimed here tonight. So well done for being here because you are saying, hey, I agree with this message. And I want a part of it, and I want, I want this to be a part of my life. And so the, the story where we are at in cha Acts chapter 6, we saw last week, um, we dealt with the choosing of the seven. The first time the church um, deals with a problem that is related to groups of people. There's two groups of people, the Hebraic Jews, the, uh, the Jews who spoke Greek and probably came from different places, and the Jews who were in Jerusalem, and so they were the real deal. I don't know, does anybody here know, like just put up your hand if you have any idea of what is going on in Israel just throughout the years. Does it interest you? Does anybody who's interested in what happens in Israel? Yeah, there's, there's the Millers. The, the, the rest, guys, if you want to see something intriguing, and this is not, where, sorry, you're up there. Uh, this is not a political thing, but, but you've got to go check out what's happening because I do believe, and this is just personally me, I do believe that God still has some connection to Israel because He made some promises to those people. And, and that, that land, that's still the Holy Land. That's still the place where Jesus came from. And our Bible comes alive in that land. So I don't think it's just the same as any other place on earth. I think it's unique and significant. And if you go look at what happens in Israel and what happens to the Jews, and how, how th they are being protected, and what has happened over the last hundred years, it's absolutely incredible. And I'll be touching on that as we, um, as we go on tonight. So, they had this issue with the, 
an organizational issue in the church. Um, and if you want to go learn more about that, please go listen to last week's lesson. And by the way, which is on podcast. So if, if it's too much of a mission to go onto the website, it's fine. If you've got Spotify on your phone or um, Podbean or, or whatever, you can just log into that and you can go listen to these lessons. So if you can't make it on a Sunday night or morning, just go listen to the lessons um, on the podcast. It costs nothing. It's, it's free to listen to. Um, but what they decided to do, the apostles decided to do to resolve this issue was to say, we're going to choose seven guys. Seven, seven men are going to take care of the ministry, of feeding the people food, because that was what the issue was about. And then the apostles would spend their time on what? On the proclamation of the word. And what we learned through that, which is so important, is that the fundamental ministry of the church should be the proclamation of the word. Our primary task is to proclaim the word of God to a lost world. As a church, as individuals, the living word needs to go out. That should be our primary ministry. And sometimes, and this is what we spoke about last week, sometimes churches get involved with all kinds of ministries that's actually got nothing to do with that. And Satan uses that to park us and to stop us from, from fulfilling this mission. And so we've got to be careful and make sure that we're always on that mission because as long as we are on that mission to proclaim the word, then the Spirit is with us. The power of God is with us. The protection of heaven is with us. And effectiveness and success will come. Churches, for years they go on, and then they say after 20 years, well, the church hasn't grown at all. And you ask the question, why? But we've been busy. What have you been busy with? You haven't been busy with the word. You've been busy with all kinds of other ministries that's not related to the word. And therefore, and that was the main thing. And therefore, the church never grew. So it is fundamentally important. And that we saw in the text last week, because when they took care of the, the widows and their physical needs, and they continued with the proclamation of the word as the fundamental thing, what does the text say? The church grew. All right, so, um, so these seven men were chosen. And I, I said last week that I think Luke records this text for us to, to, to teach us how the church first started to be organized. And there's something I just want to say about that, is that if you look at those deacons, we call them deacons, those servants that were uh, selected, remember this, that those positions were put in place because of function. What I mean by that is, there was a need for those types of leaders. Okay, they had a specific job to fulfill. You can't be a leader in God's church and do nothing. It doesn't work like that. That's why an elder is a shepherd who shepherds the sheep. He has a function. He's not just the big guy that makes decisions. No, he's somebody that fulfills a function. The same thing with the deacon. Leadership exists in the church because there's a need for it. Not because it just must be there. That's also important to, to consider, especially as we are busy working on and, and planning having um, elders and potential deacons in this church. Now, one of these seven guys gets pointed out from tonight on, and not next week, but the week after that, we're going to talk about him. You know what his name is, right? Stephen. Stephen is an interesting character. I think he's a legend. And he's introduced to us tonight to illustrate, I believe, for us a monumental change in the mission of the church. Um, every time the church is persecuted or an individual is persecuted, what happens? Growth takes place. And the worst type of persecution is about to come. 
when you, we started in Acts chapter 1 and, and, and we saw what happened to this mission, there was warnings, right? Satan and his buddies through the Sanhedrin gave warnings to these guys. Keep quiet. Don't stop talking in, this, in the name of Jesus. What else? Imprisonment. What else? Floggings. Being beaten. You speak in the name of Jesus, we'll throw you in prison. You speak in the name of Jesus, we'll flog you. Stop talking in his name. And now there's an escalation the whole time. Do you see it? Prison. Well, first warnings. Then prison. Then prison and beatings. Guess what's next? Death. That's how Satan operates. But if the worse it gets, this is interesting, the worse the persecution gets, guess what? The more the word spreads. Which is incredible that you see through the book of Acts. So it starts tonight. The worst type of persecution starts with where we are going tonight with Stephen. Let's read the text. Acts chapter 6, 8 to 15. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people. Now, let's just pause here. I mean, you remember, what was his job? To wait on tables, right? His job was to make sure that the, the, uh, the Hellenistic Jews, the widows, received their food. That was his job. It's like, wait on tables. But what is he busy doing? He's performing miracles, man. He's healing people. So he's active. He's not limiting his work just to waiting on tables. He does whatever God's Spirit lets him do. All right? So he's performing great wonders and signs. Verse 9, opposition. Oh, there's the word. Whenever you do great stuff for God, what, is he, what will he do? He'll oppose you. Satan will oppose you. So opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So what do we see he does? He's supposed to wait on tables, but he doesn't just do that. What does he do? He performs some miracles. He does signs and wonders, and what else? He speaks. He's a proclaimer of the word. So, so he's a, this guy is a great all-rounder. I like that. And somehow or another, his actions intrigues some people. Oh, you're doing all these signs and wonders. Let's have a talk. What are you talking about? We, you know, you're doing these signs, and what are you preaching? And so some people approach him, and they want to have debates with him. God gives him three things. Who can identify it in the text? I've put it in red. God gives him what? He's a man full of God's grace, power, and wisdom. If you here tonight, especially the younger guys, you want to pray for something. You know what's better than praying for a nice life? Praying for a neat car? Praying for a house? Praying for a wife? Caleb? Yeah. Something better than all of that. You pray for these three things. To be filled with God's grace, to be filled with God's power, and to be filled with God's wisdom. I mean, do you pray these things? When you pray these things, you become effective in God's kingdom. Oh my goodness, and then you get stuff done. You really get stuff done. But what's interesting for me, the NIV says, you know, you're a man full of God's grace. The Greek actually doesn't say that. The Greek says faith. You're filled with God's faith. I don't know how they got that wrong. The Greek word is pistis. And power, 
Who'd like to guess what the Greek word there is for power? Dunamis, dynamite. Yeah, dynamite, right? And then wisdom. And we spoke briefly about wisdom last week. Wisdom is the skill of life. It's the ability to make good decisions. And who is it that asked for that when God promised him the world? It was Solomon. So these are three ingredients that we need to pray for, I believe. So now this guy, he's doing well. He's doing these signs and miracles. He preaches well. And these guys, they, they don't know how to deal with him. They, they're now debating with him. Who are these guys that opposes him? So he had come, come into contact with a subgroup. Let's call it a subgroup of Jews. And the question is, how did he come in touch with him? Because he's busy serving tables. Well, probably through the Hellenistic families to whom he helped provide food for. Now, if I was sitting here and I didn't go to Bible college, and it's the first time I'm hearing Michiel say this word, you're probably wondering what is a Hellenistic Jew. Remember, even the young guys in, 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 in Israel or in, in the Middle East, there were a few kingdoms that ruled, right? There was Assyria. Later on, it was Babylonia. Then Babylonia was overtaken by the Persians, yes. And then the Persians were overtaken by the Greeks. And who knows one of the big names of the Greeks? Alexander the Great, right? And he conquered the, the known world. But as he conquered places, Greek way of life, the Greek way of life took over. And the Greek language spread throughout the world. Like I come from Africa. You know, many people in Africa, I think most people in Africa can speak English. It's very much the same thing. Although they speak all kinds of different languages, everybody can sort of speak English. It's the same thing. Most people in the Middle East, by the time that Jesus landed, could speak Greek. And so a Hellenistic person or a Hellenistic Jew is a Jew who speaks Greek and who has adopted the Greek lifestyle. That's why the New Testament is written in Greek. And so these were generally Jews who were not in Jerusalem. They lived in other places. Okay, and they've adopted Greek language and Greek culture. So that's what a Hellenistic Jew is. And for those of you who weren't here last week, the reason why the Hebrew Jews, they spoke Hebrew, they lived in Jerusalem, most of them, the reason why they looked down on the Hellenistic Greeks is because they weren't pure. They weren't speaking Hebrew like they did. And they didn't practice all of their cultural um, Jewish traditions as um, the proper Jews did. And so you were sort of, you know, you're not as cool. It's like, like me. You could say, I'm not a pure American. I'm a, not even a half-bred. I'm a 1% America. Maybe after five uh, American, maybe after five years, you'll say, okay, I've upgraded to 10%. And so these guys viewed um, the, the Hellenistic Jews as sub, sub-Jew, sub-substandard. Now, I think that Stephen, while he was busy serving these widows, he got into contact with some of their families because maybe some of these families came, some of the widows came, and they were sick, and he would heal them. And so this intrigued these families that came, and so primarily the, the group that he started debating with was Hellenistic Jews. Now, I don't want to confuse the subject, but why do I say so? Um, because we have Jews from where? Cyrene and Alexandria. Who knows where that is? Anybody? Go for it. Egypt. So these were Jews in Jerusalem from Egypt. They were, not, they were probably Hellenistic Jews, most probably. And we see that there are people from Cilicia and Asia. Where's that? 
That, that's Asia, Asia Minor. That's not the land of Israel. That's definitely not Jerusalem. So these were Jews from distant places, all the way from Africa, all the way from Asia Minor. And then, of course, we have this people, the people from the synagogue of um, the freedmen. And there's a debate as to who they were. And, you know, some say that this was a place in Africa. Um, I, I would rather go with the idea that these were Jews who were under Roman slavery. They were Jews taken captive. When the Romans took over, they um, raised them. Romans raised these Jewish um, people as slaves and then later on released them. And when they released them, guess where they went? They went back to the fatherland. They went back to um, Jerusalem because that's where they came from. And it's possible that some of these freedmen, these slaves, Roman slaves or slaves of Romans, and were the children of slaves of the Jewish faith. And I'm going to explain to you why I think that is the case here. So in any case, these guys, Hellenistic Jews, are debating with Stephen. Not the pure Jerusalem Jews. The Hellenistic Jews are debating with him here. And we'll talk about why I believe that happens in, in a moment's time. Now, as, as I've said, you know, we've, we spoke last week about the Hellenists who were not considered like solid Jews, like the Hebrew Jews. Although they spoke Greek um, and had Greek influence in their culture. I believe that the Hellenistic Jews, some of them, were more zealous for Judaism than for the Jews of Jerusalem. Hang, hang in there with me. I'm going to explain it now. Don't, don't, don't get lost. Why? Let, let me explain this. So the Jews that came from Cyrene and Alexandria and Cilicia, from distant places, they were more passionate about the Jewish faith than the Jews who were in Jerusalem. Think about a moment about that. Why would that be? Here's my suggestion. Because they knew what it felt like to be without the temple around the corner. They knew what it felt like to be without the priests close to them. They knew what it felt like not to, to, to be just around the corner from the Passover feast. What does that do to you, do you think? I think it makes you hunger for it even more. Their absence from the Holy Land made them more passionate about the Holy Land and what it stood for. They have to travel long and hard to come to Jerusalem. Think about how far they had to travel to get to Jerusalem. So they get into Jerusalem, and they're like, we are so happy to be here. We haven't been here for a whole year. We, we took all of our savings. We climbed on a chariot. We came to Jerusalem for the Passover feast to come and connect with the God of heaven. Can you imagine how it felt for them to go and worship God with the other Jews? And then the Jews who live in Jerusalem, they're like, yeah, it's Passover tomorrow. Because they're so used to it. It's like, we live here. We see the temple every day, man. Like, what's the big deal? But for the people who stay far away, they were burning to be in Jerusalem. Like Daniel, right when every day he would turn towards Jerusalem and pray towards Jerusalem because he missed it. He missed it. The slaves dreamt and prayed about Judaism while they were in captivity. They prayed about what's happening in Jerusalem. And when they were released... What do you think is the first thing that they wanted to do? They wanted to go home. They wanted to go to Jerusalem. Because as slaves, they couldn't. 
Now, this week, um, well, two weeks ago, I started reading the book um, written by Benjamin Netanyahu. He's the prime minister of Israel. And something interesting came up in that book. This, what this guy did is absolutely incredible. What his family had done for Israel. He's the prime minister of Israel. It's absolutely incredible. And he was raised in America. I didn't know that. He was raised here. He went to high school here. He went to MIT. Studied there. And <clears throat> his brother said to his teacher one day in class the following. Here in America, my classmates don't know what they're living for. But in Israel, we know. Now, you'll have to understand a little bit about Israel to understand what he's busy saying there. But if you read the book and you understand his family, you come to realize that these, these Israelites, the, these guys like Benjamin Netanyahu, we're talking about modern, modern Israelites, their land was taken that, from them. They were killed in Nazi Germany. They didn't have a land of their own. Then they fought for their land. And they are the only people, really, on the planet that can stake their land for themselves. Why? Because the oldest documents on the planet, the, the Hebrew Bible, tells us the land belonged to them. Zion belongs to the Jews, the children of David, the children of Abraham. They've got an historical document that proves it's their land. There's no debate about it. Do you understand why they are so passionate about their land? That's why they fight for their land. And so this Netanyahu, he sits here in, um, in, 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 a, in an American school, and he says, hey man, you know what I dream about every day and night? I want to go back to Jerusalem, and I want to go defend our country. I want to go build up Israel, Zion, because I'm a great, 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 great grandson of King David, and it's our land. What do you see? They're proud of their land. They're proud of their ancestry. They've got something to fight for. Something deep that goes deep into your soul. And I think many of us feel the same way about America. But America is only like five, six hundred years old, I think. Now imagine how the Jew feels about his land that God had given him and his forefathers. He's willing to fight for it, to give up everything for it. And here he is in America. And you know what he wants the most? He just wants to go back to Israel. Do you guys understand that? Does it make sense? I mean, maybe I'm getting a little bit of a feel of that. I shudder. I think I was saying to Jason the other day, you know, when I land in Africa again, I'm probably, probably going to kiss the floor. Because it's like, it's like I don't know, it's where, you're, it's where you come from. It's your thing. Now, to bring it back to the lesson. These guys who opposed Stephen, they were living in different places spread out across the world. They didn't live in Jerusalem. They were passionate about Jerusalem. They were passionate about the temple. They were passionate about Israel. So when they got into Jerusalem, I think that they were more zealous than the average Jew. Here's why. Because absence and distance makes the heart grow fonder. Distance and absence makes the heart grow fonder. These Hellenists and freed men were more zealous and passionate about the Jewish religion than even the natives of Jerusalem. Their socialization in pagan territory didn't liberalize them. Instead, it made them more passionate and patriotic and tenacious for the faith. And this will make sense as we go on. Let's just pause a second. Everybody awake. I don't want to lose you guys. Hello? 
Okay, there's a bit of, you know, response there. It's my wife awake. Hello, beautiful. Okay, let's go. Okay, hang in there. We're going to make sense of this. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they couldn't stand up. Let's just go back. They couldn't stand up against his wisdom and his spirit. So they decided, oh my goodness, we can't debate with this guy. He's too clever for us. So, so let's persuade some guys secretly to say that this guy is spreading blasphemy. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Oh, that word. That word. Those people. How many times has a, a minister of Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin? Those of you who don't know, that's like 75 leaders of Israel. This is the, what's the highest, what's the highest, the Senate or the House of Representatives? What is the, the Senate. This is the Senate of Israel. Okay, these are the big guns. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. When zealous people cannot win an argument, they resort to immoral means to break you down. Instead of saying, I am wrong, and I'm on the wrong side of the truth. Men will beat their wives if they have to, or politicians will lie or cause insurrections instead of saying, okay, I'm wrong. That's what happens here. They don't want to accept they're wrong. So what do they do? Well, you know what they do. John 18.37 says, Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. That is a phenomenal text. Everyone on the, when you see somebody refuse to listen to Jesus, you know they are not on the side of truth. They prefer lies. You can, you can go bank that. Those on the wrong side of truth do not have a problem with lying, stealing, killing. Look at the text. What do these guys do when they realize that they cannot win the argument? The first thing they do there is they secretly persuaded some people. Now, the Greek word there is hupobalo, which means to put under, suggest to mind, or to bribe. So they go bribe people. This is what I think they did. They went and they got some people together, and they started whispering lies into their ears. This is what Stephen is preaching. Did you hear this guy? This is what he's preaching. This is what he's saying. Guess what's going to happen when you say something so secretively as a rumor? What do rumors do? Rumors spread that Stephen was preaching against that city. He was preaching against Moses. He was preaching against the temple. This is what I call build a crowd through gossip. Build a crowd through gossip. Let people hear a rumor. Let them hear half the truth and therefore a false rumor. That's what happens here. And so it spreads. Telephone, telephone, ear to ear. And then look at what they do secondly. So they stirred up the people. So first what they did is they secretly persuaded some men, and then they stirred up the people. Now the crowd has heard of this lie. Now we, it, it's like you're pouring uh, kerosene on, on, on a fire. That's the, the gossiping. And then you put light to it. Then you put a, a, a fire on it. The Greek word there is suchkineo, which means to excite, to stir, to throw into commotion. 
The rumor will excite the people. The power of the masses will overthrow the reason of one man. If we can get 10,000 people to shout out against Stephen and to hate him, it doesn't matter if he's right in his argument, right? Because he can't overpower 10,000 voices. This is very, very tricky. It is easier to inspire a crowd to passionately believe in a lie than to get 10 people to believe in truth if that truth clashes with their inner zeal. We can't win the argument, but the crowd can get rid, rid of this guy that threatens our religion. So let's get the, the crowd awake. A small lie spread that led to the meeting of the Sanhedrin. And once again, what do we see? The gospel stands in the Sanhedrin again through the mouth of Stephen. We'll look at that next week. And the third thing that they do is, they, verse 13, they produced false witnesses. So the underhand, false gossip got the crowd together. The crowd got the authorities involved to get Stephen arrested. The authorities got the court convened, and now all they had to do was prove their case. They've got a case now. But for this, they needed false witnesses. And the question maybe is, was this really false? Well, yes, they are saying things there. That's not what Stephen said. Stephen did not walk around saying, oh, the temple is going to be destroyed. Oh, the law of Moses doesn't matter. That's not what he said. And we know that's not what Jesus said either. Jesus came to fulfill the Jewish faith, but they made it sound like Stephen preached a message that stood in opposition to Judaism. The big question tonight. Why were these guys so angry? Why were they so angry? That they would go so far to destroy Stephen. What was their problem? Because up to this point, many Jews in Jerusalem had already accepted the message. The priest accepted it. What is it about the freedmen, the people from Cilicia? Cilicia what, is, what is their problem with Steve, why are they so concerned? And I think you already know, because I've touched on it already. You travel over land and sea to get to Jerusalem to worship the true God in the true temple in order to obey the true prophet Moses. And then someone on the street corner preaches, no, Jesus is the way. You might as well have stayed at home if you just had faith in Him. Salvation is now through faith in Jesus, not in obedience to the law of Moses. What? I've just come all this way. I come here every year. I live for this moment to be with God's people. I live for this moment to be in Jerusalem, and now you tell me things have changed. Can you understand why it was hard for them to accept this? Day and night, Jewish slaves under Roman oppression prayed to go back to the city of their forefathers to worship Yahweh. Through the trauma, you get released. You are passionate to be back. You get to Jerusalem. You're on the streets in Jerusalem. You can go to the temple and worship, and then some cat in the marketplace tells you that the temple doesn't really matter that much anymore. That you now are the temple. That God now can come and live in you through faith in some guy who died on a cross. Of course, it's going to drive you nuts. 
I've been praying for 20 years as a slave. My parents were enslaved. I come to Jerusalem because I'm passionate about the God of my forefathers. And now you tell me that it's not all that anymore. Your whole religious life centers around Jerusalem, the temple, the Torah, the laws of Moses. You live for it. You will die for it. Maybe you have lost somebody for it. You sacrifice for it. And now someone tells you that the Messiah has come and your Jewish faith is now obsolete. You can understand why it was hard for them to accept and why they debated with Stephen. It was very hard. These guys were not prepared for the fact that they were wrong. Are you prepared for the fact that you might be wrong about something? Their zeal for a place and a law was larger than their zeal for truth. They valued the temple and the law of Moses and the rules of Moses more than the truth of Jesus. Verse 15 is absolutely incredible. So the witnesses are talking. And this verse just stands out for me. I can sort of imagine it. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What do you think that means? It's like, it's like they don't know what to say to this guy. It's like, we got these witnesses here, but look at this guy. Can't take her eyes off him. There's something about his face. I don't know, have you ever seen somebody's face change radically? Sure you have. You can read on people's facial expressions. I don't think this was anything physical. I don't think he had a, like his face was transformed to look like an angel. Wow, we've studied angels, right? Because if it was a real angel face, I think they'd all be passed out on the floor. As we see what happened to Daniel. Everybody's staring at him. His face told a message. This is my opinion. His face told a message. And this was the message that you could read in his face. I'm not scared. I am confident. I know God. God, the God of our forefathers, He is in me. And I love you. And if you want to kill me, it's okay. Here I stand. I can do no other. I am calm. I am sincere. And I'm filled with truth and dignity. What does that face look like? They couldn't describe it. Whoever wrote this couldn't describe it. But they, they saw, look, this guy's different. He's not scared of us. They've had many people stand in front of them. But this was unique. He didn't look like a divisive person as the accusations were said about him. He didn't look like an aggressive person. He wasn't there to attack anybody. He looked like a servant. Someone who has been in God's presence. One of the key things with my boys that I learned from an early age, before they could even speak, I realized that they interpret my facial expressions much better than the words that came out of my mouth. 
they would look at my boy, you know, I would say something and he would immediately want to see my face. And he, he would move his head to look into my eyes because he, he wanted to see if my voice aligns with my, with my face. Because sometimes I would joke, stop doing that. But meanwhile, I'm joking. And so he could see quickly in my face whether I was joking or being serious. I communicate more with my boys through my face than through my voice. I think that we do too communicate with one another much more with our faces than with our voices. And I want to ask you a question. What do people see when they look at your face? What do you promote with your face? What do you tell people about you with your face? Think about that. Now everybody gets home tonight, go in the mirror. Look at Micah. Micah's face is always a joke. Not Micah, Maureen. Um, This is important. I try to, whenever I see a child, I try to smile. Because I want that child to know that adult life is great. And adults are friendly. What type of a face do we present when we go down to to the shop? People look at us. What do they see? What does your face show? I think we should have faces like Stephen. Confidence, humility, extreme love. But we back off for nothing when it comes to Jesus. That combination, I think, is incredible. Now let me conclude. Always be open to the possibility of a truth that clashes with your zeal. There are many things that we are passionate about. We are passionate about politics. We are passionate about sport. We are passionate about our specific opinions about certain things. I think it's wise to always be open to the possibility that you are wrong. Don't allow your zeal to stop you from finding the truth. That's what these guys had a problem with. They were so zealous for Jerusalem and the Judaic faith created by the absence of that in their lives in other places, that they refused to accept anything else because they were so passionate about it that they didn't want to let go of it. Always be open for truth. Secondly, where there is deception, there is Satan. What is the first thing that these guys did? They did three things, and all three things involved deception. They bribed some people. They brought false witnesses. They stirred up the crowd. Who's in charge of them? Who's influencing them? It is Satan. Whenever you tell a lie or speak the whole truth, you can be sure Satan is there. You've just been taken captive by him. You're doing his will. Time and time again. Why? Because he's the great deceptor, deceiver. I don't know if there is such a word. Thirdly, the truth doesn't get rejected through mistake, but by rebellion. These people rebelled against the truth. You can't get to God one day, in other words. You get to God one day and, 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 and God, oh, I've, it was a mistake. I didn't know that's the truth. That's not how it works. You rebelled against God. When we step away from Him and reject Him, from, we've had every opportunity. Here's why. Look at these guys. They said no. Listen to this. They said no to a man of faith. With the face of an angel, with the Spirit of God, with tremendous wisdom, and they still refuse to believe. You say no to Stephen, a man with an angelic face. There's something wrong with you. Instead of a 
accepting the truth, they orchestrated other plans aligned with Satan. Fourthly, you lose more by rejecting the, tru the truth than by accepting the truth. Sometimes we reject the truth because we think we'll lose something if we accept it. That's certainly their case. Well, if we accept this Jesus now, I mean, what happens to the temple? I mean, we like the temple. We like coming here. We like making the sacrifices and stuff. We like being Jews. I don't know why they would like getting circumcised, but anyways, we'll leave that for another day. They like being Jews, and they were zealous for it. Perhaps the same as Benjamin Netanyahu. Maybe they were more concerned about the political Israel and the promises of the ancient prophets than about their salvation. Salvation is worth far more than your pedigree as a Jew. They didn't understand that. I mean, think about it. The truth, the truth of Jesus set them free. Oh, now we don't have to travel to Jerusalem once a year. Oh, now I don't have to get a lamb and doves and stuff to come and sacrifice anymore. Oh my goodness, I can just pray in my garden under a tree and God hears me. I don't need the high priest anymore because Jesus is now my high priest. So I, I have the direct connection to heaven. Do you get the statement? They lost more by rejecting Jesus than they um, would have lost if they accepted him. Freedom from law and freedom from temple was salvific for them. But they didn't see it that way because of their zeal. I hope this wasn't too complicated. Has anybody got to add something or question something? 